Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Dew. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of a sentence a day, life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Hey, here we are, everybody. Welcome. I, I can't believe the applause actually came on, on cue for a change. That was amazing. Maybe we're finally figuring this out. We're figuring it out. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. We just got back from Chicago Worldcon, only my second Worldcon, where Steve and I were a little thing called guests of honor. Yeah, I guess, you know, I don't go to Worldcon every year. I've only, the only one I went to outside the United States was one, I think, that was in Vancouver, Washington. I think that that was a Worldcon. But generally, the ones that are, you know, close to me, I will go. Close to home, I will. But Vancouver, you mean Vancouver, British Columbia? Or Van- Van- yes, Vancouver, yeah. Vancouver, British Columbia. It was, yeah, which I actually have some pain associated with because my first dog, Willie Garvin, died while I was gone. And I... I, oh, that's uh, the worst. That was a bummer. He just wandered out into the desert, in, into, into the scrubland near the high desert near where we lived up in near Valencia. It's like he knew that it was his time. And that was, that was heartbreaking. That's but, painful. I had a was. cat. It was. Like, I had a but, cat pass away while I was, oh my God. And what's worse. I mean, but, I actually think Willie had a better experience. This was Zoe. You know, I love my baby Zoe, my yes. other black cat. I replaced him. But, he died in a cage. He was he was at the vets in in boarding in a cage with strangers. I'm still yeah. Well, that was what it. was the problem with Hipshot. You remember Hipshot, who yeah, became an old dog, and his health was was poor. And we were heading out of town for a week, and I was going to board him. And literally on the way to the vet, his health collapsed, and I I had a choice to make about what I did. I did not want to leave him at the vet because of the fear that he would die alone with strangers. Exactly. So we brought him with us. No, we didn't. Oh, that's not that. No, no, no. We, I put him, I had him. Oh, okay. Well, I'm just, I thought because we also knew he was very ill before we even made the trip. And there was that conversation. Before we moved. Yeah. Before we moved, there was the whole conversation. Do we, do we, put him down now or does or do we or do we take him with us and see how he does and then we well, took it was, him with us it was painful because yeah. I, I had to wonder what did i have him put down because it was inconvenient you know was i 
No, honey, but, he was very but, sick. I know he was, and I it was just very painful to me because I kept thinking about that. I and mean, I think that you, if you love someone or you love a pet and you have a circumstance like that, you do ask yourself how much of what you're doing is for their benefit and how much of what you're doing is for your convenience. Right. Um, and, you know, to this day, you know, that happened, you know, what, 16 years ago? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And, you know, I still, you know, there's, I still have those questions and I look at that and I think that, you know, there's probably a story in there someplace. That that emotion, that wondering why I did what I did, why we do what we do around the end of life for creatures that we love. Anyway, that's another subject altogether. It well, is. Con was and, fun. By the way, a little depressing. Yes, so, it was. anyway. Sorry uh, about that. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. It's like oh, about it. The depression is part of it, too. But so, we, we had, it was a great World Con. My last time, I believe, I want to say 2016 was when I co-hosted the Hugos with David Gerald, who has been a previous guest, and he was a great guest on our podcast. And that was during the time when the sad puppies were very upset about the growing diversity at the Hugos and in fandom in general, and they were staging a protest. And I don't even remember all the ins and outs of their protest, but it was potentially very disruptive. And I got to remind people as I was standing there, I am the same person who was dressed as Lieutenant Uhura, who co-hosted the Hugos that year, which was a year of a great deal of pain and a lot of uncertainty. And my job was to make it seem like we were just all having a good time without all the pain and all the uncertainty. And all these years later, I've spent a long time since then, I, I was really happy to see how strong Worldcon is doing and the Hugos are doing. And, you know, bumps yeah. come up, but we get past them. Absolutely. And, you know, for me, you know, I wanted to be a published writer. I wanted to be a published writer who could support his himself and his family off of his work, you know, as a primary thing. And I've been extraordinarily fortunate to have been able to do pretty much that for so long. You know, I when I got started, I never thought about much about winning awards, but you know, I've won some, and I certainly never thought about being guest of honor at Worldcon. You know, it was if there was a part inside me that you know regretted that that hadn't happened or whatever, it was a fairly quiet voice. So when I was asked to do it, I mean Charles Delint, I think, was originally supposed to be guest of honor at Wilcon, and I believe he had a health emergency, and so they reached out and asked whether or not we would do that. And we said, heck yeah, we will. Yeah, it was still an enormous honor. I mean, I yes. I, I feel nothing but pride about. I'm glad that. we were on that and list, baby. You know, and what, what does that mean? It means that we would be recognizable enough that people would be excited about it and that other people who've run conventions have said we were good guests so that people would be, you know, that we would be good entertainment. Again, I figured that's that's why they would bring us out there, you know, and pay us lavishly. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, well, but hey, the food in Chicago, so good. Right. Pizza, oh, yeah, man, that deep dish pizza. You know, and while I was there, I... Got to teach Tai Chi in the mornings three times. We were a very crowded room, and that and there were enough requests for me to work out something continuing there. That I'm I'm thinking about that seriously and talking to our people about how to do an online Tai Chi workshop. And you know, met with editors and met with with new friends and old. And it was and my son had you know our son Jason had a friend coming in from Indiana. Yeah, uh, he had a good time. Wonderful. So those we had a good time. Were able to have a good time. We had a good time, Jay, you know, and 
we came back and I was tired and we got back went, uh, Tuesday night and it's taken a few days to kind of recover because we put out a lot of energy. I wanted to be there and present for everybody who needed any of my time, anybody who needed and in any interaction with me at all. I figured that's why we're there. And also it put my inner hypo, hypochondriac in overdrive because I, you know, at any large gathering, people are going to contract COVID. That's just period. And even if you're masking 90% of the time, that 10% of the time you're sitting, say, in a bar, <laughs> eating, talking, that's when it's going to get you. So I'm watching yeah. that little reports dripping in like of people. And I think more will come because it, it takes a while for COVID to show up. So I'm just battling my my inner uh, hypochondriac, thinking I have a tickle in my throat and, you know, checking my temperature, giving myself tests. So far, so good. So far, so good. But it is yeah, it's, it's it scary is. to get back out there when you know that it's a roll of the dice. And I had COVID once. And as you know, I was not really back to full energy for six weeks. So I am not in a hurry to get COVID again. And I'm going to right be now. very careful about in-person appearances. You know, I've been lucky enough to not catch it that I could notice. You know, Right. So <laughs> if you had it, it wouldn't have if been. If I had it, it was pretty mild. Yeah. Which I would have expected because I, I do tend to get very mild versions of these things and I am vaxxed to the max. I mean, there's no question. I, I mask, vaxxed, social distance, try to be as careful as possible, but also try to keep my energy at a level where if I catch it, you know, it's not going to devastate me. We got back. Well, well, wait. Oh, go ahead. I was going to talk about something else that happened at Worldcon, but it pertains to our topic today. So if you have another side issue, go ahead and and bring it up. No, no. if you're talking about something that pertains to to our our topic today, go ahead and mention it. The other thing that happened at Worldcon, thanks to Afterware Books, is that we got to sign our first copies of our upcoming graphic novel, The Keeper, which was on sale for the very first time early, even though it doesn't officially come out until September 27th. If you have the video version of this, which honestly, I'm not posting them that often, so you probably don't. But if you do, we're showing you the cover right now. It's available for pre-order, you know, wherever books are sold. You can order them directly from Abrams books which is the the publisher this is under the megascope line that john jennings created so grateful also published steve's previous graphic novel the eightfold path which was also on sale at Worldcon. yeah so we got to sign a lot of books including books i haven't seen for a long time yes uh, you know just you know there you know one that was a specialty book that was made for a convention called the called assassin Oh, right. Okay. I wondered what that was. It's a short, it's a short novel plus yes. short stories and I think an essay or two. And, you know, that was that was kind of nice. And I was able to, you know, one of these days I'll tell the story about how Assassin was written, which you know, involved a terrorist threat. But <laughs> oh, right. I remember. Yes, yes, yeah, that was fun. But anyway, so getting back, now it's a matter of we're, we're moving and we're also trying to keep track of a... a a handful of different, a double handful of different projects at different stages of development. And frankly, enough different things that I'm having a hard time keeping them, keeping them separate. So the idea of using various forms of organization so that every day I know exactly what I need to work on that day. And all I do is I go in there and I be the best writer I can be on that particular project and expand and, you know, reread it and so forth and so on. You know, there's just a lot of things going on at the same time. And that's life at this point, if, you're, if we're going to be able to address these different opportunities. And the opportunities are wonderful. 
Well, it's a bit of a whirlwind, but I'm just so excited about The Keeper. Audience, are you ready for us to talk about The Keeper? Yeah, oh, got, all right. We can talk I, about The Keeper. Uh, if if we must. Would never say we can talk about The Keeper. Dang. So you've heard us allude to this origin story in bits and pieces in previous podcasts. But the point of this conversation is not just to plug our book, which, believe me, we will be doing quite a bit. Bye, but The Keeper. It, <laughs> But it's, you know, and there's a child on the cover. And even though this book is appropriate for maybe some mature middle grade and teen students, it be, don't be fooled by the fact that there's a little girl on the cover. This is not intended for children, even though that could be one of the potential audiences. It is very much a grown folks horror story. And the thing I love most about it, besides being able to hold it in my hands, and it's, uh, it's a hard cover. It has weight, it has authority, it has so many little creative touches on the the inside book cover, has sketches, and the interstitial pages have sketch. I mean, even the little details, like the in the front flap, there's a jar with an eyeball in it. <laughs> You'll get it once you read it. And then on the back flap, the jar is empty, no eyeball. Like, ew! It's so, I mean, it's so specific and it's so thorough and it's a beautiful, beautiful publication. So first of all, I want to congratulate John Jennings for this amazing line where he's been able to take projects that he believes in and bring them out in a, in a, in a form that audiences can, can appreciate them. And for The Keeper, it is especially gratifying because this started as a screenplay. This was actually born from a moment we had faced a disappointment with an adaptation. An adaptation had been set up and we wanted to write the screenplay and we were not interviewed, even thought about probably or or pursued in any way <laughs> to write that screenplay. And it was a work that was near and dear to me. So it was a, a big disappointment and it kind of burned and kind of hurt. And I was like, and I realized in that moment, because anytime I have a setback, I try to find a way to spin it into an opportunity or a growth moment. That right? is a healthy attitude. I really do. You know, my mother, yeah, I, my mother used to say I was always making excuses for people because I would spin things and say, oh, well, then maybe he only did that because, but it really is my nature that I'm trying to find like a brighter and lighter way to look at things, whether it's something I do or something that's done to me. And in this case, I said, you know what? This is probably a message from the universe that we need to get more serious about our screenwriting. Because if we had been more serious about our screenwriting, if we'd already, say, sold a script, there's no way we wouldn't have been in the running to write that adaptation. It's just that despite having done television work, we just weren't on the studio's radar. That's the first thing. And the second thing, and I think this was even more important, is that 90% of my screenwriting had been adaptation. I only wrote scripts when producers were working with me to try to adapt something. That was true of The Good House. That was true of Gracetown. We we did some stuff at, at, at Fox, you know, trying to write a pilot. I only wrote scripts, Steve, if it was an adaptation. I wasn't writing original scripts. And in that moment of feeling helpless, I decided, you know what? I want to write a spec script. I need to just be writing for the fun of writing, for the lessons of writing. And I, it was inspired by a memory 
of spending the night in my great grandmother's bedroom. When I was about eight years old, we were visiting and it was a it, it was crowded. So I ended up sharing a room with my great grandmother and she was on an oxygen machine. So I was sleeping next to her, hearing the hissing of that pink all night long. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, her life is so fragile. She's relying on this machine to breathe. She had emphysema. And there were so many revelations that came to my eight-year-old mind at that moment. One was, oh my God, if she dies, I'm the only one in here and I won't know what to do. The second was, oh my gosh, one day I'm going to be older. I'm going to be frail. I might be on an oxygen machine and I'm going to die too. And all of that came crashing on my head. It was like this really visceral understanding of the cycle of life, which is why I think it is important for families to include elders, you know, so that children, young children can understand that we age and that we die. It's not unhealthy. It's actually essential for us to understand that to live our lives to the fullest. Right. I mean, it, it, with that. And so but that fear of mortality got really driven home during that visit. So I don't know what inspired me to want to write a script about it, but it was that idea of being alone with an old woman feeling like you're you need to take care of her instead of her taking care of you, but you're only a kid. And then of course, oh, wait a minute. Know, so that was sort of the driving emotional image, right? Of a child in a room with a sick relative. Yes. The rest of your process then would be asking, well, how did she get in that room? And right. what were the consequences of being in that room? So that, Absolutely. Was, that was your entry point into the arc of story. Yes. Yes. And and from that, I decided, well, of course, we're going to make this horror and we're not going to make it just sort of a drama about a real life situation. But we're going to, you know, sauce it up or, as Brian Fuller put it, add some gravy <laughs> to it by making it a monster story. You know. All right. So it's a monster. So the grandmother has a relationship with a creature that has been in her family line for generations that they have access to. When anyone is in need, this creature can be summoned at the time of your death to take care of someone you love. And that actually doesn't sound like a very scary creature. <laughs> it's going to be the whole point. In fact, my original title was going to be Caretaker. I wrote a short story for Fangoria called Caretaker. That was sort of the prologue, expansion of the prologue of the script while we were working on the script. But it's not just that it takes care of you. It's that it draws on the life force of everything around you, the plants. The so pets. that's the advantage of looking at a creature, even if it's a magical creature, as a living being outside the plot function. To start asking yourself, where did it come from? What was its life cycle? What does it eat? How does it die? What does it want? Separate from serving the plot. I think that as soon as I remember we had many conversations. Absolutely. About it. Yeah, because you know, I was and, just trying and to And some of them were slightly contentious, as I yeah, recall. Yeah, we we came to a point where I was, I mean, on all candor, this was it was while working on the keeper that I was like, you know, do I really need to collaborate on screenplays? You know, this kind of thing. And you were feeling the same way because you were frustrated. I wanted to race on ahead, and you were like, No, I need to understand this creature. Or we need to spend what's its history. And I can honestly say that that through the contentiousness of that process, we grew so much. And this story grew so much that I feel like it's the best script I've written. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. 
And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. You know, so my first stab at, and you were having a similar experience with, with your script, Mississippi Shuffle, which you took lead on. When I say I've written, I mean that these were scripts that either of us took lead on. They were our inspiration. We were the ones like staying up all night thinking about them. Yeah, I mean, and it's never going to be exactly 50%, but in some cases, you know, Tanana Reeve really drove the keeper. There's no question. It is a Tanana Reeve do story that I had input on the structure and understanding of but then the script is by both of us. But once yes. again, it is important to to remember that, that whoever's name comes first on the project, that's the person who took lead. That's the person with the kill switch. That's the person who has to be convinced for something to be able to change. Now, the person who has the kill switch, I think, has an obligation to be receptive, to hear what is being said so that the person who does not have the kill switch does not feel like they're being run roughshod over. Right. Tanana Reeves feelings about this story were central and it came out of her personal experience so if i want her to be able to process the emotions of grief and fear related to death then it then the basic structural aspects have to speak to her heart that that i i have to take a back seat there because it's art is self-expression 
two people are never going to be in perfect harmony about things. So it's unrealistic to expect that they will have equal amounts of investment to begin with. I mean, I think that you, you want to be sure that there is investment and then ultimately that you throw away the need to quantify who put in, who wrote more, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who wrote more images, who spent more time because that's contrary to the mastermind concept of we, we, working we without were, ego. We were in a pitch planning meeting yesterday and, and the executive cited a line from the pitch. I literally could not remember if you had done it or if I had done it. And, and that's where it, it gets at a certain point when you're collaborating, you really don't know. Who you remember was. what the line was? The thing about the cookie. Oh, me. right, 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 right. Yeah, remember. it's nobody's business outside us. I don't I literally don't remember. But in any case, and I want to I want to tell this story pretty quickly because we have a special guest today, the illustrator. Yes, we do. Marco Finnegan waiting in the green room. But but before we get to Marco, I wanted to talk about some of the stuff that predated his involvement. I'm really excited because not only was the keeper as a script born from disappointment because we didn't get a chance to write another script, but this graphic novel was also birthed from a tremendous disappointment because, as I said, this is a good script. Okay, this is a very good script. Don't just believe me. We've had meetings all over town based on this script, and it, it was really interesting to hear Rodney Barnes on a previous podcast talk about how important spec scripts are, that people didn't care about his Everybody Hates Chris episodes or any of that stuff. All they wanted to know is, what's your voice? TV is collaborative. What's your voice as a screenwriter? So we did something really smart by writing spec scripts in a way that we didn't even understand. And I had, a well, I don't want to go into too many details, but let's just say we got it in front of my absolute favorite director. And he wanted to do it as a, as a film, not directing it himself, but they talked about a potential up and coming director where he might shadow direct. Oh my, I, I still hear his voice in the hallway saying, I love the keeper. We love the keeper. But the studio said no. So when you talk about going from like the height of, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening to that gut punch of disappointment that, no, it's not happening. It was it was really a feeling of grief, genuine grief of a path not taken, which is what all these disappointments are. You know, you see a path opening up and then it's not opening up now. So it was it was a huge disappointment. But John Jennings had read the treatment and he read the script and he loved it. And he said, this needs to be a graphic novel. And one of the first things he did when he decided that was he contacted our guest artist, Marco Finnegan, who's going to come in now from the green room, because now the story evolves to where Marco is a part of it. Welcome, Marco. Well, turn on your unmute yourself, Marco. Yeah, there you, guys. there you are. So we're just talking about the, the disappointment. You know, this started as a script, as you well know. Right. And we had the disappointment of not being able to to get it mounted for film. But John Jennings said, hey, this should be a graphic novel. I know just the guy. What was your first interaction with with The Keeper? And I know something about your personal history that I hope you'll talk about, too, because it had the idea of a little girl who's living alone with her grandmother resonated with you on a personal level too. Oh, well, thank you. First of all, this is so cool that you guys are do this. This is awesome. Thanks for, thanks for calling me. No, Pleasure. The, I, I've said it before, you know, John texted me kind of out of the blue. We'd been talking about wanting to work together and he texted me and said, Hey, I think I have 
the thing that we're going to work on. And I said, well, and, and he said, well, how do you feel about drawing ants? And I said, fine, I guess. And, you know, it's fine. <laughs> just just did, so the I audience did, knows when the keeper shows up, one of the signs is you see a trail of ants. So that's why. Yeah. Yeah. And and then I and then I said, why? And he goes, I'll, and you know how John will tell you something. And sometimes he'll go, I'll keep posted. You know, stand by. I was like, that's it. That's all you're going to give me. And so I didn't know much. And then I think it was a few weeks later, he told me that you guys were working on it. He still didn't give me a whole lot. He gave me guys names. And I, you know, so I Googled, you know, like, oh, I, you know, I read Tanana Reed's work and I've seen stuff that Steve worked on. I was like, okay, so this is like, I'm thinking it's going to be a horror thing, but I don't know what, you know, and I'm, and then there was, and I, my ants. So I'm just thinking like ant monsters and I don't, and in your work that I read, nothing was like big, huge, spooky monsters. I was like, what am I going to do? Like, you know, and I'm trying to think like what, and so then he sent me the treatment and I think, yeah, he sent me the treatment and I was like, okay, this is it. Whatever this is, whenever you need me, I'm in. And then we kind of, I sent them some artwork because he had to convince Abrams that I was the guy. And so we sent them some artwork. I don't think I did any drawings. And then, and then I got the script after Abram said, okay, he might be the guy. And I read the script. And I, I think I told you guys, I'm sure I told you, I, I read it in one city. Like I just couldn't put it down. And it was, and it was emotional. You know, I, I wasn't expecting that. When, when someone leaves with, how do you feel with, about drawing ants? You know, you don't, you don't, you don't, you're not prepared. I wasn't primed for that. I was, are we doing them? <laughs> right, right. Like I wasn't, I wasn't primed for emotions. Like I was primed for like, gore really to be honest with you i was like oh this seems like like something dark and spooky and gory and then it's this beautiful story of this you know this sad you know the sad situation i don't want to give too much away but you know the sad the sad circumstance that monster and spooky stuff aside happens to a lot of people and the fear of of what we what in reality a lot of us think about would happen if we were in that situation. And I know, I think what Tanari is talking about is that when I was younger, like my mom would always tell us like, if something happens to me, you know, don't call the cops, you know, or mm-hmm. if we get sick, you know, if, if something happens at school, don't tell them, you know, don't tell them this, don't tell them. There was a lot of don't tell. And then finally, when I got older, I realized that her worry was that something was going to be misconstrued and we were going to get taken away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mom was not, my mom was the opposite of any type, knock on wood, you know, abusive or anything. But she had come from that background of if you get taken away from your parents, you know, you're, you may not see them again. And the, and the system is worse. Let's yeah. just, for just a moment, the basic setup in, in The Keeper is that it deals with a grandmother who makes a deal with a demon to protect her granddaughter who was taken away after her, you know, who is orphaned after her parents die. So given that framework, then go, go, please go ahead. Mark. Thank you. Yeah. And so, and <laughs> I don't know what was spoiling. So then, so having that, I've never, I've never seen that part of my life in popular culture, mm. you know, and I don't, and I don't think a lot of us had where there's, you know, where there's just things where you don't, you don't assume anybody else goes through that, and especially as a kid. And then as an adult, you really try not to think about it anymore. Like if you make it through there, 
and all that horrible stuff that your parents warned you about doesn't happen, then you kind of don't think about it if you don't have to, you, you know, and if you put yourself in a position that you don't have to share that with your kids. So for, for from jump, I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm already here. You know, I'm already there. Whatever happens, you know, 25 pages in, I'm already hooked. And that's already something that I want to do. And then how you weaved it, how you guys weaved it into this beautiful tale of like, you know, a family and, and it is spooky and it is dark and it is, and it does have all those things, but it's not like anything I'd ever read before. And it was almost, I was like, I don't, this is too good. <laughs> well, you know, I, I appreciate that. I, and, and kudos back at you for the it's work. It's not too good for Marco. It may be too good for some things, but it was not too good for our illustrator, and that's all no. that matters. And I, well, I think it made me better. Excellent. Oh, well, Excellent. I, I, We're happy I, to be of service, but you you you, came, you delivered. You know, so, that's the whole thing. You 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 pray for people who can bring their own artistry to your work. Right, and and I just want to say, as an aside, this was my first graphic novel i've been very curious about graphic novels over the years the late great la banks advised me before she got sick and passed away that i needed to get into graphic novels she was even trying to send me names of people i've had graphic artists reach out to me in the past to try to help me you know introducing me around to their contacts and never got anywhere you know never got anywhere and so this was the first time everything aligned there was an editor who wanted to work with me john jennings he knew an artist who was perfect for the job, Marco Finnegan, and I was writing it with my beloved Stephen Barnes. And and the the I, I had forgotten I sent you a photograph of me when I was in pigtails at about 10, 11 years old. So it's not a coincidence that the main character, Aisha, reminds me so much of myself. But I also want to ask you as an artist, because this is the part that fascinates me. And in fact, this is like so close to getting that movie we didn't get because so much of this reminds me of what it's like to have a movie, the visualization of the story, the choices that you're making as now the cinematographer, the director. I mean, I know some direction is in the script, probably a little too much. I tend to, to over-direct sometimes in scripts, but you made a lot of choices like which panels are big and, and, and which angles. And, and I have to say at Worldcon, one of the other guests was illustrator um, Gene Hawk who is an Eisner winning, and you said he's a legend. And, you know, we were sitting next to each other for a long time. So I pulled out my camera to show him the cover, you know, like I'm showing off a kid. And (laughs) I know in some ways he must roll his eyes when people do this. But instead, he just leaned in. He leaned in, he enlarged it. He just kept staring at it. And he really was drawn to your creature, Marco. He said, you know, the hardest thing of all in horror is the creature. And he said, what you did is that you created both ambiguity, which is so necessary. I mean, he went into a lecture, okay? (laughs) He said, the ambiguity (laughs) is so necessary, but at the same time, and I'm now I'm way paraphrasing, you can sense the solidness of the creature inside the ambiguity. He almost characterized it as like two images in one. He loved that so much. And I've seen some of your other work. You're working on a James Bond bond series i know it must be public because i see you posting it all the time on twitter and that's a very different style so could you explain to me what decisions you made about what style to use creating aisha and then also the monster um i think that with aisha and the world i really wanted it to feel grounded i didn't want it to feel like a make-believe because in your script it was very 
it was a very specific Detroit. It was a very specific building in Detroit in a specific neighborhood. And those, I think those specificities are what I loved about the script was that I, I, I've never been there, but I'd been there after the story. And so, and it's, again, it's not the suburbs. It's not generic town USA. It's a very specific place. And so I wanted, I even had, I hired somebody to build me the brownstone in a 3D model and build the apartment. Yeah, I'll I'll show it to you. So I could, so I could rotate it around. I gave them very specific things from the script, you know, that there was, there had to be a, even the second floor, you know, was built. And so that I could actually move the camera around because I didn't want to fake anything. I wanted them to feel. And then, so for all, and then, so for all the characters and stuff, I used my daughter for reference because she's, she's 10 now, but I think at the time she was like eight. So she was kind of in that wheel. Well, you know, I, she was wearing pigtails all the time, you know, trying mm-hmm. to get as much as we could. And then because everything was so grounded, I think that lent, hopefully, I hope it lent itself to the sincerity of the story mm-hmm. because it wasn't, it wasn't like a fantastical place with, you know, where everybody was idealized, you know, everyone, you know, there was no, there were no perfect people in this in terms of visuals. You know, they were normal people, normal Yeah, kids. the social worker, the teacher, right. they all look like real people. Yeah, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to do that kind of thing. And then so with the monster, I knew that that was going to be the part where I had to, I had some room to play. But I also wanted, I was thinking about it, you know, from her point of view. What would a monster look like if you're 10? I mean, what do you imagine? And, and that's where, you know, we talked about it before, that feeling that something's in the shadow, something's right behind you. And if you turn around, that something's going to be there. So I wanted to do that in a way that didn't spoil what the viewer imagined was there. And that's, you know, my son is a, my son is a big horror buff. And one of the things that we always talk about is how disappointed we are sometimes in movies when you see the monster, because the one that was in your head is always scarier. And so like, that's always the letdown for us. Like we'll watch something, I, you know, and we're watching something and we understand like somebody's got to, you got to see the monster or else people are going to be disappointed. But for us, for him and I in particular, that's always the letdown because whatever we imagined was worse than whatever. Well, actually, we Stephen see. King comments about that when he's talking about H.P. Lovecraft, who will say, you know, and there stood in the corner a thing which, if I described it, would blast your whole soul. And King's comment is that's nonsense. You know, it's it's that <laughs> your mind once you describe something, your mind automatically reduces it to a symbol. Not only that, but the symbol you would create if it's unspecific is specific to your fears. So it's not going to be somebody else's nightmare. I mean, if if Lovecraft said, I opened the door and there stood a six-foot cockroach, you're going to say, oh, my God. Well, at least it wasn't a seven-foot cockroach. So so the lack of specificity is actually part of creating the horror. The horror, then, is the thing that is unknowable. As soon as, you know, if something is killing you in a dark room, that's horror. You turn on the lights and it's a tiger, that's just an adventure story. Well, now that right. you're describing it that way, I totally see what you're talking about. And and thankfully, I finally understand what, what, what Gene Ha was talking about. I was just trying <laughs> not to look stupid. But yeah, I, I, get, I get what you did there with the ambiguity. So it's both real world, like it's in the room with you, but it's in shadow and it's ambiguous and it's big, but and scary. And, and you're using your imagination to fill in the rest. Yeah. I think that's great. And so much with the way that you guys wrote those scenes, she's alone. Like that's, that's the part that always got me. And that's why I wanted to build the room is that 
there's this little girl alone in this world. And, and yet there's times where she's taking advantage of it, you know, she's enjoying it, you know, she's having a good time with it. But there's also that at night, you know, when she's on that couch, like that's, that's the stuff when I was a kid would keep me up at night. It wasn't the noises. It wasn't the helicopter. It wasn't the sirens. It was the thoughts, you know, I, my mom would, I would call, I would go to my mom's room. I'm like, mom, I'm having dark thoughts. That's what I would call them. I'm mm-hmm. having dark thoughts. And it was basically, you know, once, what does heaven look like? Is it real? Am I going to go there? Maybe it doesn't exist. Have I been bad? You know, all that Catholic guilt stuff that, you know, that comes into your head and, and what's going to, and then it was always, what's going to happen to the people around me if something happens to me or what happens to me if something happens to them, yeah. you know? And so you personified that you made it real in Aisha. And so I didn't want, I didn't want it to be a thing that was tangible. And even, you know, even with the ants and everything, sometimes it's just an ant, you know, and sometimes it's not, sometimes it's a mass of shadows made up of ants. And if you're 10, it's a mass of shadows made up of ants. It's not just an ant. You know, when you get older, it becomes, Oh, well, that's just an ant. And, you know, now there's times where something will fall in the backyard and my wife will you know, wake me up and say, go, go check. And I'm like, oh, I've already figured out whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like I've already, it's the rake, it's this, it's a raccoon. But when you're 10, it's a massive ants, you know. The boogeyman. Yeah. And that's, and I think that's what you guys did really well. And so I was just trying not to take away from that, from that. This is she's scared of other stuff. Like she's a tough kid, but she's scared of other stuff. And there's a moment, you know, there's kind of some moments in there where you're like, well, is is this real or is this grief or is this, Mm -hmm. you know, just being a kid and, Mm -hmm. you know, you guys have kids. And I know that like when my kids will wake up when they're little, they would say something really specific was in the room. You know, they'd be like, there's this, you know, specific thing is in the corner. And for a moment, I'm like, what if it is? <laughs> you know, you know uh, maybe what you know. You're you hesitate at that light switch. You know, um, what's in that closet? And I never got rid of that. I never, and I think if anything, it got worse when I had kids because you do worry. You worry more. You know, it's a different kind of worry. So I think you guys really had that in the story. So that's anyway. Long-winded answer of that's that's why the monster looks like that. It's a great answer. <laughs> great. I love that answer. Yeah, I think yeah. that one of the things I enjoy most about doing this show is being able to kind of peel back the surface and look into the process that leads to the creation of the surface. Otherwise, you know, you see a Maserati on the street, you don't understand an internal combustion engine or a powertrain or anything else, and it looks like magic. You know, all you see is, you know, and, and right. you go home and you, you, you create something that looks kind of like that on the surface, but it doesn't drive. It, it doesn't have any power behind it. So a art conceals art. If you can't understand what goes underneath it, we're not talking about the tactical and strategic things and the partnerships that you have to build, but listen to the fact of the generative emotion. This all started because Tananarive had an emotion she remembered from childhood that she then combined with disappointments that we had about other things that were happening that then focused on this moment of loss and fear and then built a story around that powered by that, that I then got to come into and help with, with structural things, which then got shared with you to you brought in, you know, you basically are the director, the art director, the special effects man, and to a certain degree, the actors. So it, this is, 
I think, a really good conversation for letting people have a sense of all that goes into just having a book at the end of the process, which, and I think that this book is going to be a movie. I think that we're, by the end of the year, we will have a deal from someone who wants to turn it into a movie because now they can see exactly what that movie would could look like. They may not choose to do it that way, but but they could. So we're helping to visualize that. So whether it exists just as a just as a graphic novel, or if it also exists as a an intermediary form between a script and a movie, it's all good. No matter how you look at this, this was an, this was a successful experience, and it is its own creature. You know, I'm just looking at the the inside of the book with the, what I'll call the list of credits. <laughs> a graphic novel <laughs> has more than just the authors and the illustrator. Who's a co-author? Oh, yeah. and it has a designer, Andrea Miller, a managing editor, okay, <laughs> Mario Ishii. I think it, that would be pronounced. A production manager, Allison Gervais, the colorist, Alexandria Bachelor, and then lettering. Who knew? I mean, I don't even know yeah. what some of these people do. David Sharp, or Dave Sharp. So I don't know. I don't even know what all those jobs are. So it kind of blows my mind that a whole team of people came together. To tell Aisha's story, I'm just still kind of stunned. By nice? it. it is. It's so amazing. And what's nice is I think it all everything in this is one of those rare things where I think everything fit together with the story. So like your 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 nugget of an idea, it, I don't think it ever lost that the scene. You know the feeling of it. I think there's it's not just. I don't think anybody who it got it wrong you know i don't i think the lettering is great i think the coloring is amazing you know and i and i don't think that it would have happened if this if we didn't have those story meetings because we had that story meeting where you know you got to talk to everybody everybody was in that meeting everybody got to hear you tell your story and tell like where this came from and i think everybody knew once they read that script because it was so, again it's so good that that's exactly this is not is this is not a generic story. It's a very specific universal story. If that makes you know, like I think that everybody's going to read this and they're going to take that same fear they've all had it. But I think you, I don't know, I don't know how you did. I mean, you're obviously you're very good, but <laughs> but you you hit something that hasn't been covered a lot, and it's and it's fear, but it's also she's strong. Like you know, she didn't curl up in a ball. She didn't call nine one one. She didn't run to the neighbor's house she was gonna all it there's a moment there where she's gonna be okay well you know you, you, you touch on the moral fable you know which is she needs this creature to survive but she also becomes aware that that survival has a cost to people outside herself yeah. so the question what are we willing to do in order to be comfortable in order to survive in order to make our way in the world and so in that way it's universal because we all have loss we all have fear and we're all tempted to make devil's bargains it just yeah. it's just part of life at what point do we become the monster i think is the question she had to be asking herself and it's so interesting when you note marco that these are images you haven't seen before I mean, I, I'm very fortunate. I did not. I mean, I, I guess I could say I grew up in the way Aisha started. She had a two parent household in this basically in the suburbs that she lost when her parents died. And she ended up in this rundown brownstone with her grandmother. So she's kind of thrust into kind of immediate poverty in a way. And and 
having to navigate not having a bed to sleep on. She has to sleep on the couch because the, the room isn't big enough. And that insecurity of the social worker coming. And maybe that's not something that more affluent families deal with, but there is some version of loss. There is some version of, will my parents get a divorce? No matter how rich they are, they're always fighting or whatever that I think is universal. And that to me just speaks to the power of what I call marginalized horror. I don't like the word marginalized. I need to come up with a better word, but but often our stories have been pushed out of the spotlight because our lives are not considered important. And for horror fans in particular, when you can see a fresh way of addressing an old trauma, like it's not, you weren't Aisha, but yeah, when your parents were screaming at each other at night, yeah, that was your feeling you had too. It creates fear and dread in a in a deeper way than a story we've seen a million times before. I think so anyway. Oh, and, and that's a hundred percent what drew me to it is because of uh, that's exactly what I want to do. I, on my thing, I was just moving the picture out of the way so I can read it. I have Mosley's quote where it, it says that he's driven by the belief that if people don't exist in literature, they don't exist at all to the general public. Mm. And that's that's pinned up in front of my work area where I, and, you know, I read it every day and I put it up there. And I think that that's why this book matters because you're showing it. And it's so hard to not, it's so hard to, to not make it a pity story. And there's never a moment in there where you're saying this is, you know, it's, what's the word Steve said it at Comic-Con. I think he said, trauma porn is what the word right you know? <laughs> no and that's right and it's not it's such a beautiful story about family and there's monsters and all that good stuff but it's just such a you know i don't I, know we we need the story i I, would, I can't articulate it i would like to come up with a term that isn't the you know i forget what was the term that you didn't want to use t for what you said you know the oh marginalized marginalized, marginalized yeah you know excluded outsider for all of those things unfortunately to the degree that you're talking about the fact that there were gatekeepers of a particular group who could then exclude other groups i think what's necessary is to come up with a term that does not center center those gatekeepers in Mm. other words they would love for us to think that they were the power in the universe and we're the marginalized and we're the marginalized but it's not that it's that they were able to maintain an illusion and that illusion is breaking down. This is causing them a lot of trauma. But I think that that finding the right word for that maybe inclusive horror. I like the word inclusive, but it's, it's not also it's not bad. It's very it's dry. Bad. I mean, yeah. real, realistic would do it. I was going to say real world horror. Real world yeah. horror yeah. that reflects reality. Yeah, because <laughs> that's that's saying no. You've been you've been the one in the illusion. We're not changing things from the way they actually are we're restoring them to the way they actually are you were able to temporarily create an illusion that things were not this way yeah i think but that there is a philosophical aspect of that and a political aspect of that that's another conversation it's a it's a worthwhile conversation i'm just glad we are in this brave new world we did an entire episode about marginalized horror just recently if you missed that go back and listen to it But I'm so proud that one of the blurbs that we have for The Keeper is from the writer-director who, at least on the cinema side, has just kicked so many doors open for inclusive horror. Jordan Peele. 
and he he actually blurbed it. As busy as he is, he had time to read it and blurb it. And he said, The Keeper is an imaginative, terrifying tale of generational trauma in a Black family that is crafted with expert technique and told with real heart. So I'm just going to frame that on my you know, wall. We uh, have- we, T-, T and I are <laughs> enormous Jordan Peele fans. We feel that he is has been an incredibly important artist. And with a, a sensibility that is that people are hungry for. And 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 we Victor Laval said Barnes, Dew, and Finnegan are masters of the creepy. And I was just as moved by all the kindness and love I found inside. A wonderful piece of work. We also had blurbs from Rodney Barnes and 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 Alex Segura's on here. Just and and really even more people, but the back flap is crammed with blurbs. And again, I'm just overwhelmed this I, I i at this point i can't take ownership of the keeper because it is such a joint project but still i can almost get teary just that that people gave their time busy people gave their time to to read this and say kind words about it and, and so nice that that got to be your first experience of working you know in this in this medium t that's that's lovely it's amazing it's amazing when did and, you write it when did you guys write the screenplay i i i know I know, two years ago. 2018. Story, but... Well, it's longer than that now, honey, because time has flown. It was like 2018, 2019, I would say. Wow. It's been a while. Certainly pre-COVID. And it, it just in terms of the, it's not a craft lesson as much as it is that when you are in the arts, you have to have a thick skin and you have to have the ability to adapt. Octavia Butler, I think, said adapt or die. <laughs> and and, and <laughs> by die, it would be your dreams dying. Because if you brush up against that sharp skin and you're so put off by it that you don't want to try again, then that screenplay sits in a drawer, you know. And at the beginning of my career, I had the between. My first novel sat in a drawer for nine months because I got one or two rejections. Look, <laughs> you don't just need... <laughs> I think that most writing programs understand that you need structure and technique. What they do not acknowledge is that you also need business acumen and you need the emotional strength to be able to keep going when you get your guts kicked out. Yes. Or when the doubter voices in your head are talking. You know, if you listen, if you look at the path of art, there is the creation of it, there is the marketing of it, there is the sustaining of a career over enough time for you to be able to to work out your kinks and get good at what you're doing to, for your basic skills to move to unconscious competence. And I think that it is understanding that very few people, you know, if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, you literally can go to a doctor and say, what school did you go to? How did you become a doctor? And they can give you a list of the classes they took, and Bob's your uncle. Same thing is true of a lawyer or an engineer. But with, with writers, either people talk about being, you know, artists, or people talk about, you know, basically just writing for the money, and I'm just, you know, it's, it's, I'm just doing this as a job. The idea that it's possible for us to express ourselves artistically and support our families and fulfill our dreams and to create paths for other artists to come up because you're out there hacking through the sugar cane. So you're leaving a a path for you. And that's what birthed our, our course, the life writing premium course. That is the, the major sponsor of (laughs) this podcast. The whole reason we started doing the podcast. That's right. (laughs) We're going to learn about our course. People have to learn about the course and to also give people as much understanding as possible of what is the outcome of 
incorporating these attitudes, these behaviors, these strategies. So every week you get, you'll get a, a lesson, you'll get prompts, you'll get instruction, you get resources and attitudes and philosophies that lead to being a successful writer of books or short stories or, po- or, or graphic novels or, or film or television. You know, however you want to express yourself. And we have created it. It's available at www.lifewritingpremium.com. It's a year-long program that is designed to take you from being a complete outsider to having your first sales. You know, right. And if you're already selling, to being the best writer you can be. During, during stressful times, and boy, a lot of us are, are undergoing those, it can be so easy to move away from your writing practice, meaning the writing that you do for your heart space, and not just the stuff that you might be lucky enough to have a contract to do. But something like The Keeper was what I worked on on the side. In between work, I was doing that was paid and, and might have been like a, a Marvel short story or, or, or that kind of stuff, which I also love. But it's just coming from a different place. You have to nurture those very personal creative embers or sometimes you just have to keep the pot stirred so you can work on that other stuff that's not from your heart space, but it's weekly reinforcement and writing practices that will really help you thrive and make your writing dreams come true, starting with a sentence a day, which is basically your your buy-in every week. You really have to sort of commit to at least writing a sentence a day, which all of us have time to do, by the way. But it is tough to keep up with the momentum of everything else going on in our lives, reinforcement deadlines and strategies can be so helpful just to keep that project moving forward and we wanted to make it affordable so it's a weekly subscription that could be worth you know if you've ever taken a writing workshop you know those are very expensive but this is only 29 dollars a month you know i just want to say that my entire emphasis was on giving to others the resources that i wish i'd had when i started my career it is a love letter to the 17 year old me who's just finishing high school and wondering what I was going to do with my life and my, and my career. And it took me 13 years to kind of get my, my feet on, on solid ground, which involved a lot of work, a lot of pain, a lot of tears, but also a lot of luck. Cause I met some wonderful people along the way and we're sharing, you know, the inside of people like Larry Niven and Robert Heinlein and Ray Bradbury and Octavia Butler. And, you know, just what did they do that enabled them to succeed we're bottling that and giving as much of that to you as possible. So check it out at www.lifewritingpremium.com. And Marco Finnegan, thank you so much again for being on the show with us. Can you tell us? Oh, I loved it. Can you tell us where we can find you, what you're working on, your socials? How can people get all the Marco Finnegan they can stand? Oh, I, that's not a, that's very little. I, a little of me goes a long way. No, I'm on Twitter too much. Marco 949 at the on Twitter and then I'm writing the new James Bond the 007 series for Dynamite or I'm not I'm not writing I'm drawing it awesome uh, you guys are talking so much about writing I got I got carried away I got excited listening to you. and then <laughs> and then, then I have something coming up that should be announced I'm doing right after and then who knows I don't know after that we'll see so do you have a website and, and I do marcofinnegan.com I'm the worst self promoter but I you know and and the thing is to echo everything you said in, in, about your life writing, you guys, every single time I sit and talk with you guys, which isn't nearly enough in my life, to be honest, I come away, I'm like, I got to do more stuff. Like, I'm just excited. You guys are, you know, it's infectious. We everything love what about we're it, doing, you know, Marco. Uh, Thank you. You know, it's we that excitement. It. It's, it's just, necessary. 
You know, in Hollywood, they're always doing the, you know, we're super excited. They're not doing that because they're phony. They're doing that because the fuel of art, especially in a, in a, in a commercial art thing, is excitement. To be able to, to be an excited human being that enables you to take that excitement and turn it into, take that energy and turn it into power, turn it into the ability to do things. So the ability to every day make contact with your enthusiasm, your love, your passion is a central thing that artists must be able to do because the world will take will eat as much of you as you will give it you have to have the energy both to work and to protect your heart from the things that happen along the way so i'm 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 a big believer in taking care of yourself so that you can take care of your art boom all right everybody let's get out there in that fight to get our work out there and have our vision everybody who's listening thanks so much for being here go out and make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story the uh, hero or heroine in the adventure of your lifetime take bye bye (laughs) you've been listening to the life writing podcast Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life. Good morning, everyone. This is Trevor Van Winkle, and you're listening to Homestead on the Corner. You are noisy, your earth. Calling out into the airless, transmitting in the bond. It's just not what I expected, but I remembered. Not how you remember. Dear child, nothing here has changed. Nothing here ever changes. Take us out of here. Maximum acceleration. Heading? Captain? Let's chase that horizon. Homestead on the Corner, a writing advice podcast and audio drama anthology from the creators of The Sheridan Tapes. Listen now on all podcasting platforms or at homesteadonthecorner.com.